Warning, today's podcast will contains fantasies about fantasy. In other words, here there be sex. Podcastle, episode number 71, for September 22nd, 2009. I'll Give In, by Megan McCarran. Welcome to Podcastle, I'm Dave Thompson. It's funny the things that used to terrify you. I don't remember being terribly scared of vampires, or ghosts, or white witches, or wolves coming out of the wall. Okay, that last one didn't really exist when I was a kid, but I wish it did. It puts the most gleeful sense of terror in my daughter. You want another thing that used to scare me the most when I was younger? The possibility of living a boring, ordinary, mundane life. I imagine this is something a lot of fantasy fans have in common. We dream of stepping through the wardrobe to meet Mr. Tumnus at the lamppost. We want to hang out at the floating market in London below or journey with the Raven King to Fairy in the far side of hell. Sure, we don't really expect these things to actually happen, but I think we still dream for something more than a 9-to-5 in a house in the suburbs. Something extraordinary. Like what Peter Petrelli once asked on that old TV show Heroes. Do you ever get the feeling that you were meant to be something extraordinary? That was a great TV show. Glad they never made a second, third, or fourth season. Anyway, in the end, I don't think we want to just read about a never-ending story. Like Bastion, there's a part of us that wants to actually experience it. Preferably with luck dragons. In all those stories, escape is the key. Characters move from our world, leaving behind the Mundies and the Muggles and painfully boring ordinary jobs and features to become a chosen one, a king or queen, a superhero, or in the case of China Mievels on London, something even cooler, a sidekick. I don't know about you, but my life hasn't turned out to be any of those things. Somewhat surprisingly, it's more ordinary than I ever expected it to be. Let me give you a rundown of my typical schedule. I wake up early. Must have coffee. Maybe get some writing done if I'm lucky. Get my daughter fed and drop her off at school. Have to be at work at 8. Well, 8-ish. Close enough, right? Exercise, hopefully. Then play with the kids and help get dinner together. Around 8, the kids get put to bed and I'm wiped out. I used to be a night owl, now I'm typically in bed at 10, worried I'll somehow turn into a pumpkin two hours ahead of schedule. Funny thing is though, this ordinary life isn't as scary as I thought it would be. It isn't always easy, but it's certainly not a bad life. In fact, I really like it most of the time. Let me tell you the best parts of my day. Waking up every morning next to my wife, pushing my daughter on the swings before I leave her at school, and seeing her and my son smile at me when I come home from work every day. Really, for me personally, those are the most fantastic things ever. Although sometimes, I could do without getting woken up in the middle of the night, sleeping in, and that would be a true fantasy. So yeah, I guess it's ordinary, but I'm certainly not afraid of it, and I'm definitely not bored. But what if that's how fantasy actually worked? What if even the most fantastic things, people and tasks, became mundane, or at least were mapped over our ordinary day-to-day lives? What if vampires actually existed? Didn't go around drinking people's blood, I mean, but they just, I don't know, sparkled. Okay, I take it back. I can be terrified by vampires. Today's story doesn't have any kinds of vampires in it, sparkly or otherwise, thank God, but it's chocked full of the fantastic and the mundane. It's called I'll Give In and was written by Megan McCarran. Ms. McCarran was born in 1983 and grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs. She's since spent time in Beijing, Los Angeles, and rural New Hampshire. 
Her stories have appeared in venues such as Strange Horizons and Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and have been reprinted in several years' best anthologies. She currently lives in New York City, where she works at a tiny independent bookstore. You can find her online at meganmccarran.tumblr.com. It's narrated for you by Rachel Don't Call Me Mundane Swirsky, someone I think you might be familiar with and who honestly is all kinds of fantastic. So, take another sip of that 2% Starbucks vanilla latte as you make your way into work. Keep an eye out for the fantastic masquerading as the mundane, and enjoy the story. I'll Give In by Megan McCarran This is a story about marriage, monsters, and a labyrinth. Not necessarily in that order. The labyrinth was made of hedges, and it sat next door to our new house. It was left over from the estate that used to occupy the grounds, a sprawling, fanciful money pit that had been sold fast and cheap by the owner's heirs to our developer. The lots were still cluttered with cracked fountains, overgrown gardens, and toppled statues. My husband, Oscar, raged about this at least once a week, especially about the eyesore next door, but I hardly noticed it until Phil moved in. I hadn't known the labyrinth was, you know, available, but one morning a moving truck parked out front, and after the movers consulted what had to be a map, they started carting boxes in. I watched this mysterious parade from my window until I got antsy and put Slash, my dog, on his leash to do some on-site reconnaissance. There was no sight of the movers, but a car pulled up as I was peering into the entrance. I booked, trying to pretend I was just out for a brisk walk, but a voice, sweet, tenor, stopped me. You're not just going to run away, are you? I turned around and found myself face to face with a minotaur. He was shorter than I'd have expected, and a bit more... human He had the head of a bull, sure, but he wore a black suit and a skinny black tie, like he'd decided to live Pulp Fiction. I'm Phil, he said. Phil, I said. It's easier to say than my real name. Try me. Phil grunted something unintelligible. I tried to grunt it back, and he started laughing. I think your dog would have done a better job, Phil said. And you are? Your next-door neighbor, Jane. I assume this is your house? For the moment, the company hired me to do security, Phil said. This is like the safest suburb in the whole city, I said. Construction has a way of making things unstable, he said. Jane, I'm sure the place is a mess right now. How about you come by tomorrow? In there? I said. It's easy. All you do is turn right. Not much of a labyrinth, I said. Then I'll be sure to see you, Phil said. He smiled when he said this. I'd never seen a Minotaur smile. It was weird and comforting at the same time. I liked it. That night, Oscar made it home in time for dinner, and I had my usual three-course feast prepared. I'd been working on the soup all afternoon. Mm, he said. Lentils. I knew that was supposed to make me feel pathetic, spending all afternoon cooking for my husband, waiting with bated breath to hear him say, Mmm, lentils. But I didn't. I could get a job whenever I wanted. Well, if they didn't ask about the criminal record. But anyway, better procrastination through gender roles. A minotaur moved into the labyrinth today. I said. That's cool, Oscar said. He was still engrossed in his soup. A minotaur, Oscar. His name is Phil. I've never even seen one before. Once we saw that Pegasus. I still think it was a fake, said Oscar. Is he Greek? Phil, I mean. I don't know. Maybe he's French. 
a surrealist minotaur. Did he hit on you? No, no, he's just very modern, I said. For some reason, I thought it best not to mention security to Oscar. He didn't trust the builder to begin with. We polished off the sage-encrusted chicken and settled down with some homemade ice cream to watch the L word. Oscar and I both get kind of randy after watching the L word, and that night we went at it right there on the couch. I fell asleep on his chest afterwards. He poked at me when I started drooling, and we went upstairs to bed. I am nothing if not a woman of my word. Or, more precisely, a woman who never misses an opportunity to visit weird neighbors. I used to spend hours with my neighbor in Brooklyn, Mrs. Tannenbaum, who claimed to have been a high-class whore in the 30s. Her living room was full of empty bird cages. We used to sit under them in sagging chairs, drinking tea in cups with matching saucers, and tell each other dirty stories. But compared to Phil, Edith, Legs Tannenbaum, was a minor distraction. I didn't know what time was best for minotaurs, so I stopped by the labyrinth around lunchtime. Halfway through the maze, it occurred to me I would look like a lunch moocher. But I was suspicious of this just-turn-right system. Did I just turn left to go out? It seemed too easy. The center was one of those servants' cottages that dotted the development, also left over from the estate, except this one was stuck in the middle of a freaking labyrinth. Phil was, in fact, having lunch. I passed a shaken pizza delivery boy at the door, but he didn't so much as offer me a slice. At first I was offended, until I realized he intended to eat the entire pie. Slash and I sat in silence as he took the pieces two at a time and stuffed them in his mouth. It was a little hard to watch. Despite the fact that the cottage was in the middle of a maze, it had electrical outlets, and the faucet worked when I turned it on. Every room was equipped with skylights because the windows were choked with hedge. The boxes near the bedroom held the most beautiful old books I'd ever seen. Others contained dishes, decorations, linens, semi-automatic machine guns. Um, I said, are those guns legal? Yep, Phil said. He was at the sink, washing sauce from his mouth. Muzzle? Are you in the mob or something? I said. Do you know about minotaurs? Phil said. Your security contractors? Sort of. Because of the nature of this property. Nature of this property? Shit, this isn't poltergeist or something, is it? No, just some minor nuisances which I'm in the process of taking care of. Let me show you my library. The library turned out to be the bedroom. Bookshelves covered every available wall surface, like ivy. They were only a third full, but what was there was beautiful. I must have sighed because Phil said, I thought you'd like books. I... I'm kind of a writer, I said. What do you write about? I don't write much, to be honest. <laughs> Mostly I cook elaborate dinners for my husband. I kept writing the same story. What story? Well, there's this boy. Or a girl. It used to be a girl. They go to this other land and are supposed to be a hero, but they don't want to be a hero, so they wander around and try to find a better hero so they can get off the hook. That's a boring story, Phil said. I know. I gave up. Maybe you could write about me. I'll think about it. That's my standard response. Can I help you put away your books? I'm really ashamed of it, but my passions in life are, in order of importance, food, sex, and organizing. I was kind of a bad kid growing up, but even then I loved rearranging bike garages and measuring out dime bags. I was the cigarette bookkeeper for half the women's prison within two weeks of my arrival. When I say I was a bad kid, it's mostly that I dated bikers, like... When I was 15, I was in love with this 27-year-old dude named Rusty Knife. 
I never did anything really bad. I did time because my drug dealer boyfriend forgot to flush the weed he bought me for my 18th birthday. I met Oscar about five years later, when I was clean and straight and mostly respectable, though still not over bad boys. Oscar is the kind of lawyer whose job it is to scare the crap out of people, and he has three tattoos and a hot temper. He gives me what I want, when I want it, except, of course, when I want to be denied. He's a near-perfect mix of biker and sane person, though, if I were being honest, I'd say he's a little too sane. But I understand no one's perfect. The next day, I went back to help Phil put away his dishes. I was explaining to him why I loved saucers when Roberto, the construction manager, showed up at the door. He peered into the entrance like it might eat him. What's up? Phil said. Hey, um, Roberta began. We've got some, uh, giant winged horses tearing up Lot 15. There were three of them, and they were beautiful. They were bigger than any normal horse, though giant was a bit of a stretch. Two of them were kicking up dust around the construction site. The third was trotting around in what was going to become the attic of the house. Right now it was only a frame. The bottom levels were busted up in places, and the construction trailer had been overturned, but the horses looked so happy. Phil pulled out his gun. You're going to shoot them? I said. They're monsters, Jane, Phil said. Look at them, they're horses! Phil raised the gun. I'm sorry. I stood in front of him and pulled out one of the carrots I'd grabbed from my fridge. I'll show you. I had learned to ride in a city parks program when I was little. I was pretty good. Really good, actually. I still had my ribbons. Oscar and I kept talking about buying a horse, but I knew nothing could compare to these guys. I walked up to them slowly and whistled like I'd learned as a kid. I approached the nearest, carrot in hand. She seemed to like the smell of me, and I held out the carrot. She came over and nibbled. At just that moment, a cement truck roared down the street, and the calm broke. The horse nearest to me reared and grazed my head with its hoof. I fell and heard pop-pop-pop-pop-pop-pop. No, I moaned. I opened my eyes. The horses were gone. Phil picked me up. He smelled like cologne, like pine. Are they dead? I murmured. No, Phil said. I shot the gun in the air. They flew away. He carried me all the way back to my house, my head resting on his shoulder. I cried a little. He sat me on our kitchen counter and dug out our first aid supplies. He offered to take me to the emergency room, but I refused. He kept wrapping bandages, kept shining the flashlight in my eyes, kept saying over and over, I'm so sorry. At some point I was all bandaged, but he was still touching my forehead, my face, the curve behind my ears. At some point the flashlight was out of the picture, but he was still looking in my eyes. I was rocked with equal and opposite surges of shame and arousal. He leaned in and kissed me. Kissing him was not like the biker's but it wasn't like Oscar, either. I felt gathered up in something bigger than me, like I was something precious, but something strange as well. My heart pounded in my ears. I was scared. I was high. He pulled away, and I buried my face in his shoulder. His fur was softer than I'd expected. Cleaner. Can't, I whispered. I know, he said. I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I just... I'd like to go nap now. If you could just go, I'd... Right. Sorry, Jane. Sorry. After Phil left, I found myself to my shock, sitting in front of the study computer. I pulled up the file called simply S for story. I didn't bother reading what was there. I started to type, Theseus and the Minotaur. Wait, no, I don't like the way that story turned out. Allie and the Monster.
The first thing Allie did when she came to Trell was befriend a monster. No one in their right mind befriended monsters, but she was new. She didn't know. The monster's name was Brutus. Brutus was hairy and breathed fire. Allie told him that she'd come to be a hero. Brutus pointed out that heroes weren't friends with monsters. Fuck that, Allie said. She stayed friends with Brutus. That was her first mistake. Oscar made dinner that night. It wasn't half bad, but I wasn't about to admit that to him. I hate it here, I said. There was a huge bandage around my head. I felt like a fool. I never see my friends. I'm alone in the house all day. You're the one who wanted a house, Oscar said. You're the one who quit your job. It was a mistake, okay? I'm sorry about the horses, Jane. I hate it all. I, I hate suburbia. I hate writing. I hate being married. You don't mean that, Oscar said. I stopped talking. I could hear the unsaid. Do you? I'm sorry. My head hurts. I just want to go to bed, I said. I woke up at 2 a.m., unable to sleep even with the headache. I went downstairs and started writing. I didn't go over to Phil's for a week or so after that. Oscar stayed home the day after the horse incident. He stayed home. This is the equivalent of many men quitting their jobs completely, and forced me to go to the doctor. The doctor, of course, told me exactly what I was expecting to hear. Minor concussion, no drinking or running around for a week or so, and to my relief he let me go. I kept thinking about Phil, and not in that, boy, how can we maintain our friendship way. I imagined him taking me on the kitchen floor. I imagined going over there in nothing but one of my winter coats. I imagined my fingers in his fur, his human cock inside me as his bull's mouth worked its way up my neck. I resolved to ask Oscar to be rougher, to put on cologne, to wear masks. It was weird, because Phil's presence always made me uneasy. The bull's head was one thing in a fantasy, another in the flesh, where I could contemplate the massive face, animal nostrils, the unreadable eyes. The memory of his kiss was electrifying, until I thought about it too close, remembered the panic I felt in his arms, just as much as the safety. I headed over to Phil's about a week later. I decided to show him the story. None of the construction workers were around when I went inside, and I wondered if it was some kind of holiday. I always forgot about holidays. When I walked in, Phil greeted me, same as always. He took my pages with his free hand as he finished cleaning a gun. He read it over as I sipped some of his scotch. He looked up at me afterwards and said, Do you want to go kill some sirens? What? I said. They refused to drain the lake. Here? Well, they shouldn't drain it. It's nice, and... And the property values, I know. Lucky I found them last night before the construction workers came in. Put these earplugs in, he said handing me the orange kind you wear on airplanes. They were squishy. I liked your story. You should write more. We set out for the pond at the front entrance by the sign that says Penwin Woods, Phil toting a massive gun, me with a kitchen knife so I could feel included, both of us wearing bright orange earplugs. We passed through the vacant lots in a cocoon of quiet, and the silence made the neighborhood seem even more deserted and sinister, as if there had been a disaster or a plague, instead of just a day off. Three women in sequined dresses lounged in the pond's gazebo, smoking. They didn't even look our way. "'You're not bisexual or something, are you?' Phil yelled. "'I made out with this one girl in high school and kind of liked it,' I said. "'What?' Phil said. "'I said, I made out with this one girl and I kind of liked it. Can you row a boat?' There was a rowboat waiting at the bottom of the marble steps. 
It looked as old as said steps, and time had not been treating it well. Phil clambered in and took a seat at the bow. I sat in the middle and started rowing. The sirens watched us approach. The first put a leg up on the railing and started to sing. Ooh, baby, suck me in. I want to feel the touch of your skin. Never been tempted to quite a sin. Don't worry, baby. I'll give in. Move in closer, Phil called. I rode toward the island. The other two sirens had joined their sister on the edge of the gazebo. I'd never seen such perfect women, not even on television. I wanted to touch them, to be closer. Ooh, baby, suck me in. I could smell them now, a mixture of vanilla and sex, a hint of smoke, of, of fire. Never been tempted to quite a sin. Phil picked up his rifle. You're not going to shoot them, I cried. They're not people, Jane. Don't worry, baby. The siren saw Phil raise the rifle, and they knew what it meant. Suddenly, Phil froze. He was eye to eye with the first one. I could see her song on his lips, his mouth saying, I'll give in. I did the only thing I could think of. I smacked him upside the head with an oar. At first, I didn't think it worked, but then he reached up to where I'd hit him and groaned. It happened quickly now that he'd made up his mind. Pop, pop, pop. They started screaming, their faces turning bird-like. One still rasped the song. Feel the touch, the touch. Phil opened fire again. The screaming and the singing stopped. I rode us closer. The sirens were gone, too. Nothing but sequined dresses and three dead pigeons. Blood that would never come out of the wood. Phil picked up a dress, then dropped it on the ground like a piece of trash. He came up to me, touched my face. Sorry, he said and grinned, tracing the line of my jaw. I reached up and flicked a sequin off his chest. The fur there was still soft. He still smelled like cologne, like the piney hedges. Desire shot through me. Phil sniffed the air as if he could smell it. Maybe he could. Ooh, baby, I said, grinning back. Suck me in. When we got back in the rowboat, I was humming their song. We walked back to the labyrinth in silence. Phil kept his free hand hooked around my arm. It was oddly tender, considering he was using the other to carry a gun. Ostensibly, we were going back for another scotch. He poured us each a fuller-than-average glass and invited me to come sit in the library. I sat on his bed's plain blue comforter, panic and desire roaring in my ears, and wondered what would happen next. Very little, it turned out. We sipped our scotch and talked, like always. We talked about our favorite translations of the Odyssey— local politics, ancient history, modern relics. Where I'd expected him to throw me on the bed, he was touching my hand, laughing a little too loud. At one point he reached for my knee and held it, but still we kept talking, kept sitting, kept killing time. I kissed him. At first he seemed confused, and when I pulled away he muttered something like, well, but suddenly I was in his arms and his mouth was on mine. It wasn't sexy so much as overwhelming. I tried to slow him down, but he was already taking off my top, kissing my breasts with eager, quick pecks. He pushed me down on the bed, finally, a part of the fantasy I remembered, but suddenly I realized I didn't much like being pushed down. I liked to push. I don't know why, at that point, I didn't roll away and say as sweetly as I could, baby, settle down. But instead I let him pull off my pants and spread my legs. Because this was how I'd wanted it to go, wasn't it? Jane, he moaned as he slid into me, and for a moment I cupped his face in my palm and I was there, fucking him, not in the script in my head. But when we met eyes, all we could do was look away, and he started to thrust, 
and it hurt, but I let him. I just let him. That night, Oscar and I had Chinese takeout. In my defense, it was really expensive Chinese takeout from the boutique place across the city line, but still, I felt ashamed. No, I take this as a good sign, Oscar insisted as I passed him the orchid chicken. There was no real orchid in it, just a few rose petals masquerading. It means you've been working. Oscar has been convinced I'm a genius since our fifth date, when I read him an early portion of the story before bedtime. It's the sweetest thing ever. I felt like someone was ripping out my spleen. Yeah, I put in a few hours, I said. I barely made it. What did you do otherwise? He asked. Oh, um, helped Phil with some stuff. Phil? The Minotaur. The Surrealist. Has he hit on you yet? Oscar laughed. I saw a flash then of Phil's head over my own, those animal eyes, the snuff of his breath. Oh, God, I said. I laid my head on the table and buried my face in my arms. I fucked him. What, Jane? Oscar said. He was spooning out rice. He hadn't heard me. I peeked over my arms. I fucked him. We killed some sirens, and I kept hearing their song, and... Oscar put down the rice box very slowly. This was a bad sign. What? he said. I hid my face back in my arms. I had no answer. It was a mistake, I said. You what? he repeated. I heard in his voice that it was starting to sink in. Suddenly Oscar shoved his chair away from the table. His plate clattered, but it didn't fall. For a moment I was back with the bikers, and I expected him to smack me. Get out, he said. I'm not leaving, I said. Oscar didn't say anything. Get out, he repeated. I laughed. It turned into a sob even before I could take a breath, and I buried my head in my arms again. Oscar stood, and I heard the door slam, but I couldn't look up. Slash trotted over. I swatted him away. My mother used to explain adulthood to me like this. You run wild, honey, and for a while it's great, but eventually you get tired of living for yourself. You get tired of being selfish. Well, I'm still not tired of being selfish, but acting for yourself, taking care of yourself, is a fuckload of work. Having someone else around to limit choices, to temper things, to keep you out of trouble, it makes things easier makes you feel grown up, especially if you love them. Phil came by a few hours later, bearing a dog toy for Slash. I made him come around to the back door. I can't come with you anymore, I said. I don't want you to, he said. You, this, I said, gesturing at his animal's head, intimidates me. I know. It's in the story. When Allie looked at Brutus's fur, his dangerous hands, she forgot who he was. She liked it, but it scared her. Let me kiss you, Phil said. I closed my eyes. But when he pulled away, I didn't feel that connection, like we were the same person or something close. I just felt like he was the monster, and I was the girl. Oscar came back at 2 a.m., so drunk I went outside to make sure his car wasn't parked in a tree. He wasn't an angry drunk. I'd never have married an angry drunk. 
He stumbled in and threw his arms around me, crying, screaming crying, worse than I'd seen since his mom died. I took him upstairs and held him as he wept, murmuring, Why, why, don't, don't. I helped him to the bathroom after he puked on the rug, sat there with him as he dry-heaved for two hours over our water-saving toilet. I got him water, toweled off his sweaty brow, wiped his mouth. Around dawn, I helped him back into bed. I called his boss at work and left a message saying that my cooking had given him food poisoning. Then I crawled into bed, and he laid his head on my chest. Things were never easy with me and Oscar again. But I chose him, and he let me. Feedback for Podcastle episode number 62, Delia Sherman's The Fiddler of Bayou Teche, about a woman who has to outdance a devilish fiddler. Oh, and there were werewolves too, I think. People really, really like this episode. Not just the story, which they loved, but also Elizabeth Green Musselman's reading. Sylvan said, Not only was the reading beyond perfection with its inflections and bringing the bayou to life, but the subtlety of the magic, the folklore that sprang to life, made this fantasy seem so real that I felt as if I could get into a car and drive to where it took place. I felt as if this was something that actually happened and that these people, these events, were just waiting to be uncovered. Such was the voice of the author. The story itself was mesmerizing. This was a fairy tale of the highest order, complete with Baloo Guru, an old woman of the swamp, and a deal with the devil. And while these elements have graced plenty of stories before, it takes a true master to weave them together in such a way as to make them feel fresh and vibrant like this. The humanity of the characters, their very souls and personalities, are etched into the words in such a way that they are the very fingerprints of the story, making it unique. Wonderful tale. I'll be listening to it again and again and again. Thomas Owen M. said, Excellent story. I was completely taken to the bayou. This was escapist perfection. It picked me up and dropped me right into the heart of Cajun country. Wilson Foley, one of our regular narrators, said, I think Elizabeth Green Musselman is edged into the position of my favorite escape artist reader. This is the first escape artist story that I'm likely to listen to again. Not for the story, but for the educational opportunities in listening to and analyzing the narration. I love this story. The out-tricking the trickster trope is probably my favorite storyline, probably stemming from watching way too many Bugs Bunny and Wile E. Coyote as a kid. And Lucky made a comment about the preponderance of violins and guitars and other stringed instruments and musical deals with the devil stories, which spurred some serious discussion in the forums that spanned trickster gods, pipes, percussion, the female voice, castration, and even religion. Although, maybe not in that particular order. Come on over to our forums at forums.escapeartist.net, where it's never too late to continue discussions and commit random acts of threatomancy. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Cyril Connolly said, Life is a maze in which we take the wrong turn before we have learned to walk. <laughs>